Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder. We are at the Conclave, Conclave 2021, and uh, we are at outside of the Bear's Den. It's a beautiful day, partly cloudy, a little warm, but sitting here in the shade with Marcellus Nelson from the Austin, Texas area. When I was down in Dallas in April, I wanted to try and make it down there, but ended up not being able to do it. So on my next trip, I got to make it down to Austin. Come on down. I, I, I hear Austin is just a great place. Yeah. The best place. A few people say it's the best place in Texas. I don't know about the best place in Texas. <laughs> I'm sure my UT fans will hate me for that. But uh, I say it's uh, an interesting and unique place in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so first question I like to ask everyone on the podcast, what you smoking? Oh, I'm smoking a, a LFD Andalusian Bull. How you the like rare and ever-elusive bull, as they say. I like it. Um, the bulls are normally what I smoke on times like this when it's a celebration, good time. I'll buy a box, and they'll sit there and just get some age on them mm-hmm. and normally I bring them out if I'm doing something like this we're at the Conclave which is my first time so I brought some bulls if I'm at the beach which I was last week and if I uh, if I'm breaking the law and going hiking yeah <laughs> <laughs> most of the time I love to hike really? most of the time there's the sign uh, no smoking well yeah <laughs> So where'd you grow up? Steve, I'm from Monroe, Louisiana. Sometimes people say, hey, where's that from? You know, sounds familiar. Well, across the river is Duck Dynasty. Okay. So that's where I grew up. What kind of family did you grow up with? A blended family. So my mom remarried when I was about three or four. So it was me, my mom, uh, my stepfather was my pops. And I got a younger brother's sister. So I'm the oldest of the three of us, and then I have two older stepbrothers. Yeah. What kind of kid were you growing up? Oh man, I I had a I had a tough upbringing, Steve. How so? I was molested. Oh my god. Multiple times so sorry. by a family member when I was eight. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. I dealt with a alcoholic stepfather. I got kicked out of my house. In high school and spent my last year and a half, two years living with a buddy. His mom was a single mom. So I, I learned how to cope early on and put on a mask, as people say, right? I put on this mask yeah. to deal with, because I couldn't tell anybody. I didn't feel like I was anywhere was a safe space for me to speak about what I was dealing with. And so I learned how to put on a mask and pretend to be somebody else. I wasn't. When did you learn to take that mask off? When did I learn to take it off? When I gave my life to Christ in 2015. (laughs) So, okay, before we get to that, what'd you do after high school? I graduated high school in 2005. Five days later, I was standing on those yellow footprints in Paris Island, South Carolina, joining the Marine Corps. And I started that journey. Uh, I did four years active in the Marine Corps. I left the Corps uh, in May of 2009. 
And then uh, through a series of unfortunate events, um, I had a brother, an older brother, who passed away of bone marrow cancer. Mm. And uh, Steve, I, the Marine Corps was my way of running. Going to the military was running. And when you find something that's toxic and that works, you keep doing it. And so my brother passed away in January 2010. I did what I did best and I ran. And I went to the Army in April 2010. And I did that for four years on active duty. So basically running from the pain. Running from the pain. Hmm. Trying to play my own God. Yeah. Did you have any kind of faith background growing up? Any kind of experience with church or yeah, my mom. So my mother raised me in the church. Uh, every day the doors was open. She drug us there. But one thing I realized is you can't inherit your parents' faith. No. You cannot inherit your mom's faith. Yeah. Your faith has to be yours and yours alone. Yeah. And so though I, I gave my life to Christ, quote unquote, gave my life to Christ. When you were a kid. I was a kid. I mean, I was, I almost say I was 10. I got baptized. Mm -hmm. But Steve and me, I was coming to God to fix my issues. I saw God as a, as a check the box in a sense kind of God. What I mean by that is if I come to you and I surrender to you, you'll change my home life and you'll change this stuff that I'm battling and dealing mm -hmm. with. And when that didn't happen, Steve, and things got worse, eventually I just slipped away from believing in God and and I joined the Marine Corps in 2005 I was just like I don't who's God I don't need God I could do this on my own mm -hmm. I learned how to survive as a kid on my own yeah so you didn't have anyone that you could talk to no um, people knew in the church some things right the physical abuse that was going on right um, so if people in the church knew that was going on but Nobody knew about being molested other than the person that did it to me and my brother who later subsequently passed away of cancer. Mm. And we were all young. So it's how, how do you process how do, that? How do two teenagers and a young kid process that? We all just buried it. Mm. So what was the Marine Corps like for you? <laughs> Well, everything fun that's living in the world. Steve, for me, the Marine Corps was, it's the culture that has always been. Women, drinking, it's a rock star lifestyle. It's a, it's a, a sport, an athlete's rock star, hip hop lifestyle without the million dollar contract. Yeah. The women throw themselves at you. They don't care if you're married. They don't care how many other women are in competition. You go places and they buy you drinks for free. And everybody is living a life where you work hard and you truly play harder. And that's how the military is across the board. Mm. It's uh, When I look back now, it's, uh, it was the best and worst experience of my life. How so? It was the best experience because I had to learn how to just grow up, man. Mm. I had to learn some discipline. I, you know, I had discipline, but... I had to learn how to live in somebody else's world and follow their rules. But it was the worst experience because when you're living in the world, you don't understand that you're in the world. Because when you're not with God, you don't understand that. That concept of worldliness isn't a concept. Mm -hmm. um, you think that every day is just a, a fun day. How can I ha go have a good time today? Mm -hmm. 
And so being in the Marine Corps, it started all of that. That's when the wheel, that's when the wheel of Satan's playground really got to rolling. And I, I went in, Steve, I went into the Marine Corps somewhat a virgin. And that quickly went away. Mm -hmm. And it was like a, what was it, a Pringles commercial, right? The old school Pringles commercial that says, once you pop, you can't stop. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. Mm. You know, I thought that I, my identity as a man was wrapped up in how many women I could sleep with. The more women you sleep with, it did twofold for me. So on one hand, the more women I slept with, the more my status of a man elevated. Mm -hmm. And the second fold was the more women I slept with, the less I had to deal with what happened to me being molested as a child. Mm. In my mind, I had to make sure there was no doubts of same-sex attraction. And I never, I never was attracted to men, right, at no point. But when you're sexually abused, it goes one of two ways. Yeah. You're either attracted to your abuser or you swing the complete opposite. There's not really much middle ground for kids who don't have the cognitive ability to even work through those kind of situations, let mm -hmm. alone anywhere where they feel like it's a safe space to speak on it. Mm -hmm. Where was your family? How did they come alongside of you while you were in the military? <laughs> oh, my mom probably not going to like this, but they didn't. I sort of kind of put my family in a little bit of an exile when I joined the Marine Corps. Mm. I was speaking to my mom daily, but I had resentment for my mother. I didn't know it at the time, but when I look back, yeah. That's when I learned uh, there's healthy boundaries and there's toxic boundaries. Mm -hmm. And when you're a toxic person, you can't have healthy boundaries. And I put people in boxes, but they were toxic boxes. Mm. And I never thought about that until recently, actually. Because people now say, oh, you know, these healthy boundaries, but then they be toxic individuals. And I'm looking like, uh, no, you don't have healthy boundaries. You're figuring out a way to cope, but it's still toxic. Mm -hmm. Because you at your core are still toxic and struggling with what you're struggling with. And not until you address it and own it and start working through it, does things become healthier mm -hmm. for you. And in which point once you become healthy you learn how to put people in boundaries but in a in a healthy and respectful way so for me Steve uh, I learned how to survive in a sense on my own I learned how to hustle and and do what I had to to get to the next level in life essentially on my own mm. and I had people along the way right that I'm grateful for people that tried to help but again, when you're a kid, you're just a kid. You get out of the Marines in, you said, 20... May of 2009. 2009. What'd you do after that? I moved to Frisco, Texas. What took you there? I had a buddy of mine, a family that lived on the street from us where we grew up. And they knew some of the stuff that was going on in my house. And they had moved to Dallas, moved to Frisco, and you know, I needed a place to stay and I lived with them. But when you're toxic, you tend to bring your toxic ways with you. It's like baggage. And I got there and I started using their computers to look at porn and 
sneaking out and not obeying their rules. And eventually they asked me to leave. And at that point, I was a little upset. But again, you don't know what you don't know, right? Hindsight's 2020. When I look back now, um, they were one of the first families to welcome me back when I came to the faith. The Car Keeks, wonderful family. Mr. Brian and Miss Mary, they actually sent me a book when I came back to the faith when I was living in Virginia. And I read it. It was a very powerful and, and life-altering book that I had read. And I truly appreciated it because... What's the book? Oh, man. I can't remember the name off the top, off the top of my head. It's, a, it's from a pastor in San Diego. I can't remember his name, but I know he was a pastor that was, I guess, somewhat famous for marrying a former porn star. Mm -hmm. And he spoke a bit on that, and he spoke on just life in general. And in the way he worded the book and the way he he wrote the book just it jumped off the page at me page at the page and after reading the book I was forever grateful uh, I knew this family I knew the car keys didn't hold any animosity and they did what they had to do they had to protect their family they still had kids in the house mm -hmm. and I'm actually grateful that they kicked me out it was part of the journey they kicked me out and I moved to a, I got an apartment with a chick in uh, Louisville, Texas. Mm -hmm. And kept continued on with my uh, toxic ways, as you can say. Yeah. But when you're toxic, that's what happens, right? You don't stop the train. You just find a different place to go to get on back on the ride. Yeah. Yeah. So how'd you end up in Virginia? Oh, man. Steve, that's a God thing. Let's hear it. So... When I was in the Marine Corps in 2009, I was stationed in Camp Pendleton, California. I knew I was getting out. But I was a corporal at the time, and I had to do a counseling statement for one of my uh, Lance Corporals who were getting out. And in his counseling statement, I noticed that he had said he was uh, planning to move to Virginia to go to school. And he was like, uh, and the statement says Liberty University. So I asked him, you know, when I was sitting down talking to him, I said, uh, what's Liberty University? And he says, oh, Corporal Nelson's a Christian university. And uh, I, said, so I said, son, I said, uh, Christian university? Ain't no women at Christian university you sleep with. I didn't say it like that, though. Yeah. And uh, he was like, oh, no, Corporal Nelson, I'm not like that. I love Jesus, and, and this is my calling to go to school here. Well, for me, I, I saw it as weak. You go to a Christian university? Like, you can go to all these other party schools. I even told him, I said, what about Arizona State or, like, University of Oregon or something? Yeah. Where you can find you some women. And, again, he reiterated, I'm not like that. And I laughed, but I never knew that God was planting that seed hmm. in 2009. So fast forward. After my hellacious time spent in Iraq in the Army in 2010, Losing six guys from one unit, one guy from another unit. So you moved from the Marines to the Army then? Yep. So okay. got out in 2009, went to the Army in 2010, deployed to Iraq in 2010. 2011, around like April, we had our first KIA, a guy from route clearance. And then uh, June 6, 2011, 
Uh, we were ambushed. And the aftermath was five of my brothers were dead. And then one passed away 10 days later from being burnt over 91% of his body. Oh, no. And Steve, man, there's nothing like hearing a grown man scream burning alive and you can't get to him. There's nothing like seeing three ribs in the femur bone from the aftermath. There's nothing like craters in the, in the ground from explosions uh, fingers are floating and half of dog tags are in the crater, the other half is outside the crater. Uh, there's nothing like walking past the talk and or the, the medical shed and, and watching them perform CPR on your buddy that's dead. But I think the one that got me the most, well the two things that got me the most in my deployment, Steve, um, when we were headed to blow people up on the medevacs that were coming in, they had the dead bodies in this tinfoil-looking Ziploc bag in the back of the Humvee. And then the second thing that got me was putting my buddy Centron on the Blackhawk. He was unconscious, and right when we put him on the Blackhawk, he came to and was freaking out. And me and him had just gotten an argument a couple of days before that, and I asked him to forgive me, and I gave him a kiss on the forehead. And in my heart's of heart, I thought he was going to live. Mm -hmm. I really did. But he passed away 10 days later. And I'll, I often tell people, uh, had he not passed away, I might would have kept a little bit of what was left in my soul. And uh, we came home a few months later in October, and we had to deal with it. And everybody coped how they cope. How did you cope? I was became a full-blown alcoholic. I went from having fun to full-blown alcohol. A bottle, two bottles a night, no chaser. Mm. To the place where maybe like three, four days after being home, I tried to kill myself. Mm. I put a pistol in my mouth one night. And as I'm, I lived in townhomes with my, my wife and son were upstairs. And as I'm in the middle of my trigger squeeze, I feel this nudge on my elbow. And I look down, it's my two-year-old son who is now about to be 12 here in October. He's like, Daddy, I can't sleep. Wow. So, oh my, my oldest son in a lot of ways is like my angel, right? Yeah. But, uh, that didn't stop me. I had, I had two, three other attempts. This is in a dark place. Can't sleep, night terrors, demons hunting you in your dreams, constant flashbacks, and there's no running from it. You don't go to war and see what a lot of us see and come home and just turn the switch off. Mm -mm. They tell you how to go to war, how to kill people, how to survive. They never tell you how to come home and survive from the aftermath. They don't tell you how to survive? Is that when, changing? When you're in combat, man, you ain't got time to throw a pity party when, you, when your friends die. You're still there. And so you just suppress it like you've been doing all your life. And a lot of people come to the military, they already got 
issues that they're dealing with and they're running from. And it just compounds it. And then you come home with PTSD and nobody wants to talk about PTSD because everybody knows if you talk about it, your career's over with. Why? It's not just a stigma, it's a real thing. I mean, there's always been a stigma around that, but it's, it's, I'm living proof of that. I got away with it for about two more years after I got back, well, a year and a half. Man, Steve, I was in, in and out of jail. I got arrested twice in Kansas. I got arrested two, three times in Hawaii. My last time in, in Hawaii, I got into a, a fight, cut a guy's face open. Mm. Was facing assault with a deadly weapon, a felony charge. I spent a day and a half or so in jail. Got bailed out. Got a whole lot of cussing out from my command. My first time I had a conversation with me and him in his office. And he told me it wasn't a choice. I was going to see the therapist. Went to see the therapist. I think it was like a Monday. My career was done by Wednesday. Recommended for the med board. Now at the time, Steve, I was pissed. I thought I was gonna do 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. When I look back now, God was delivering me from the pits of hell, literally. What year did you get out? 2000, I got out uh, June of 2014. Is that changing at all? That stigma within the military around PTSD? They're trying, but it's, <clears throat> it almost feels to no avail. Really? Why? Just because leaders get up there and say, hey, um, don't hold back, go get help, go to behavioral health, go seek out the health for your PTSD or your post-traumatic stress or your spicy memories, whatever they want to call it. It doesn't mean that the system in itself isn't still in place. And the system in the military does not have mercy and love for women who have been raped and deal with military sexual trauma, soldiers who are men who have been raped and deal with military sexual trauma, or military members who have and struggle with PTSD. The military still has a culture of rape. The military still has a culture of toxic masculinity. Because I believe there's healthy masculinity. I think I believe that men need to be men. But there's ways to do it. And in the military, you don't oftentimes see those ways. Mm -hmm. You don't see those healthy ways in the military. Mm -hmm. Everybody's cheating. Your sergeant majors are cheating. Your first sergeants are cheating. My first sergeant got relieved for cheating when we were deployed. These are the same people that tell you don't do this, don't do that, and they go do it. Guys in the, in the military snorting lines on active duty. Yeah. They think weed's a bad thing. These guys in there killing each other, selling drugs. Mm. You know, the whole Vanessa Gillian case, right? It's not a one-off. It happens all the time. Mm. That one just got in the news. People say Fort Hood is bad. I'm like, look, I've been some places bad too. Mm. I've been in the leaderships where I had female Marines that got raped and the command threw it underneath the bus. Good old boys club. 
And it's not to say, Steve, that all, all the military is like that. I've had great commands. Fantastic unit. My very first unit in the, in the Marine Corps was fantastic. They call a spade a spade, and they punished it as according. Mm -hmm. But not every unit was like that. Mm -hmm. People are human. People make mistakes. Sometimes those same mistakes are on purpose, so they ain't really mistakes, right? So the culture in the military is still what it is, unfortunately. Mm. You mentioned a wife and a son. Talk mm -hmm. about that. When, 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 did, when did your wife come into the picture? Uh, I met my wife on MySpace. That's how old I am. <laughs> Met my wife on MySpace the end of 2005, December 2005. So we met in person in 2006, early 2006. Yeah. Went on two dates. She ghosted me for about a year. She came back in the picture. We got married 30 days later. So we got married in 2007 when I was actually headed to... Uh, in fact, we got married in November 2007. I left on an unaccompanied tour to Okinawa, Japan in January 2008. Mm -hmm. My wife would like to say that uh, I was good for about a month. And I went to Japan and my ways kicked back up. Mm -hmm. And I came home with them and they never stopped. I went to Iraq, came back. Got my wife pregnant. Three months later, got another woman pregnant. Mm. I have a daughter in Missouri who lives with her mom. Life went on. In 2012, I divorced my wife, another woman. I was divorced for about two months. Got remarried to this other woman. Divorced her after about a year and some change. At this point, I'm like 27 going on 28, two divorces, three kids, two baby moms. Mm. My life's a, a highlight reel. Mm. My buddies just say, oh, you're living a living more show. But my career ending in 2014 was the beginning of Christ truly shaking things up. Talk about that. So I moved, I was in Seattle. I was, in, I was stationed in Hawaii on Schofield Barracks when my career ended in 2014. I moved to Bellevue, Washington, living in downtown Bellevue. At the end of 2014, I decided to move to California where my two sons were at with my ex-wife. I moved out there, it was like November or so of 2014. Started school that January. What were you studying? You know what, Steve, I wasn't trying to study nothing. I was trying to get my BH money. <laughs> yeah. I was broke. I got in a $33,000 severance package and blew through it in six months. Mm. Women, strip clubs, and around and around the circles. Mm. And then uh, 2015, I was dating a Lebanese chick who now had recently gotten cigars in Iraq in 2010. And she invited me to a cigar lounge. Well, this was my last attempt at trying to kill myself. 
At this point, I'd already had two other tries in between. I, uh, it was a Thursday night, I still remember. And I had a Glock that I had taken out of my safe and I put it on my ottoman. And I said, you know what? God, if you're real, you got until Saturday at midnight to reveal yourself. Or well, I'm gonna blow my brains out on your holy day on Sunday. Mm. Thursday night, nothing. Friday night, nothing. Saturday night, she's like, hey, let's go to the Cigar Lounge. I show up with her in the Cigar Lounge in Pasadena, California. In walks two men in the black tuxedos. One's a pastor, didn't know it. For about an hour and a half, he gave me the gospel. He doesn't smoke cigars regularly. He initially didn't want to go there. And about later that night, when he stepped outside, and he showed me where his church was across the bridge and asked me to find him if I showed up at church. Showed up to church. I had an hour drive home, cried. I had an hour drive the next morning, showed up to church, and God just started moving. I had my eyes closed. I didn't know how to do this worship thing no more. And this guy tapped me in the shoulder. I never saw this guy again. He says, my brother, he said, I got a word for you. He said, God told me you're done running. Now, Steve, most people don't know the impact of that statement, you're done running. Rewind it back right before I went to Iraq. My wife was always trying to have these interventions. She said they ain't interventions. Yes, they were. She was always trying to have these interventions. And she had wanted me to go to church with her one night. And there was this, a, this a Hispanic evangelist from Brooklyn that was speaking. And in the middle of the service, he called me out. What year was this? This is 2016, literally right before I went to the army. And he says, God says you're going to run from him, so run. Now, he had posed a question right before that. And the question was, what has God called you to do? Now, Steve, when I was 12, I had multiple people tell me that God called me to pastor. I wasn't trying to hear all that. I was going through it. Mm -hmm. I had quarrels with God. I ain't trying to hear nothing about no pastor. Fast forward, this evangelist telling me, asking me, what has God called you to do? And I had just taken the fire department test for Los Angeles Fire Department. And I said, to be a firefighter, he started laughing. I started laughing. My wife started laughing. We all three knew. He said, you know God called you the pastor. He said, but God said you're going to run, so run. Ooh. And I was already running. Ooh. What I didn't know was Iraq was going to happen. What I didn't know, I was going to try to kill myself and suck start pistols and, and get on a motorcycle going on 150, 170 on the freeways in Hawaii trying to kill myself. God knew all these things. And here I'm standing, and this guy in 2015 is telling me, hey, God says you're done running. After three years, well, five years previously, I got this other evangelist saying, God says you're gonna run. So this five year gap of running Oh, it got dark. Darker than what it already was. Mm -hmm. And here's this guy in his church in Pasadena, California, 2015, saying, God says you're done running. 
And over time, man, God just revealed everything. It came full circle. I knew that God had wanted me to go to school for some kind of biblical study, some kind of something mm -hmm. relating to pastoring. And I couldn't shake Liberty University. I had never been to Virginia. I had never been to Liberty. But I was faithful and I went. And God provided all the way through. So you get to Liberty. How did that change you? <laughs> Liberty was twofold. On one hand, Liberty was great because first time I had a, a core group of men that were Christians around me. Before I just had a single person here, a pastor here in California, a church member here in California that were pointing to me. When I was at Liberty, I had groups of professors, groups of other students, group of other men who kids went to Liberty or who just lived in the town who were yeah. pouring into me. Yeah. And that was the good side of Liberty. The ugly side of Liberty was white Jesus. Ooh. Every class you go to, there's a blonde head, blue eyed, long haired Huntington Beach, California Jesus on the PowerPoint slide. Everywhere I'm go, people are asking me what sport do I play, what position do I play. Now, granted, I'm six four and I'm big. I get it. But these preconceived notions are coming from somewhere: mm -hmm. ignorance, prejudice, sometimes racism. And I thought it was just me, Steve. <laughs> then the small black student body that I found myself plugging into, like, hey, no, nah, it ain't just you. And my white friend's like, no, it's not just you. They're seeing it. And about a year and a half in, Steve, I was ready to leave. About a year in, actually. Probably, I want to say, like, the first two semesters were great. It was beautiful canvas, mountains everywhere. I was on this Jesus high. Mm -hmm. The reality set in. I come from the military, man. I don't never have to think about race. Yeah, I'm from Louisiana. The racism is a real big deal. But I'm experiencing at this point more racism than I have in Louisiana. And I'm trying to figure out how is this possible. Hmm. Louisiana is very behind closed doors. Virginia is very in your face. Hmm. And so having these inner conflicts started to birth church hurt. I didn't know that's what it was but now when I look back that's where it all started hmm. having students I got friends that are six four as, as, and as big as me my white buddies I had a guy I had a little incident and I was with two of my my white Christian brethren and he was walking down the hall and this guy stops us and was like oh man what sport do you play on the team I mean what position do you play on the team at this point Steve I snapped I had enough and I was, what the F make you think I play a freaking sport? I said, man, I'm 35, 30, what time? So I'm 34 years old. I play no damn sport. And I said, you know what I used to do for a living? I hunt people that hunt back. And I said, if that's what you want to call a sport, then that's the sport that I played. Mm. He said, oh, man, I didn't mean no offense. You didn't mean no offense, but man, 
Go check yourself. Go look in the mirror. Clearly, you ain't got no other black friends. Yeah. Because I got two white friends standing right next to me. Both 6'4", both big husky. One's a cowboy and another one's from North Carolina. Yeah. They're just as big as I am. Yeah. You don't ask them that. Yeah. So it started to just get underneath my skin real heavily. And I ended up leaving Virginia um, after about, I went, I started in August of 2016. I left in March of 2019. And I graduated in, in that May. Yeah. I finished off online. Moved to Austin. Then all the Jerry stuff started happening with the last year, two years. I just laughed. I, we already knew. Yeah. It's a lot worse than that, but hey, not my problem no more. Uh, Liberty was great for what it was worth. It was great for the beginning of my spiritual formation and the men that, that I surrounded myself with. Mm -hmm. But on the other token, it started my church hurt. How'd you, how have you over the last couple years addressed that? Have you? address that my church hurt yeah <laughs> buzz leonard sat on my patio gave me a spiritual spanking about a month ago that's how i got addressed i had let it just simmer i always use this volcano analogies you know especially with ptsd with ptsd you let it build up and build up and build up and you try to keep ignoring it you try to Go on hikes and, and, and do silky hikes and do all this stuff that veterans do instead of getting real help. <laughs> and eventually it blow up. Eventually you get triggered one day and you're in handcuffs. You're trying to suck start a pistol or you're dead. Yeah. The volcano analogy. Once the volcano explodes, it explodes. Everything else after that is just a consequence of the aftermath. And so for me, Steve, I let this church hurt just simmer and simmer and simmer instead of dealing with it. Yeah. I'd be burnt by church at the church, trying to get a job and scared of my past, terrified of my past, to the place where the church I was attending in Austin came to me about coming on staff as a pastoral resident for two years. Had a lot of sit-down meetings. It lasted about eight months. In between then, they went in front of the congregation, telling the congregation, hey, we're praying on bringing him on staff. Everybody thinks it's a done deal. And in the last month and a half or so, just ghosted me. Wow. Now I'm friends with the executive pastor, so I try to just suppress it and not make it become a big deal. But Steve, it just... That was the straw. That was what broke the camel's back. That was the last little shake in the volcano that made it explode. Mm. And after walking with Christ since 2015, I, I just exploded. And I had to deal with some fallout, some consequences. Uh, and then Buzz sat on my patio and just loved me. He does that. Just loved me. He's good at that. He's good at it, man. And I'm grateful for him. And I'm grateful for Jeff Styles, who 
has been my Barnabas in the season. And that was another thing that was going on, his health, right? And that made me upset at God. Because since 2015, I've been praying for Barnabas and you bring me one and he has terminal cancer. And he's getting sicker and sicker. Mm -hmm. And not only is he a Barnabas to me, like he's the father figure, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm pissed. So all these things just contributed to the volcano subsequently erupting. And then at that point, I had to look back and figure out what was true, what was a lie. What path I wanted to keep going down and what path I needed to get off of. But ultimately, I knew that I had distanced myself from God. I was running in the, on fumes in the flesh. It was like automatic to speak about Christ and do all these things, but... The thing I had told men not to do was put on a freaking mask and take the mask off, slip the mask back over my face for a few months. Mm. And before you knew it, it took the volcano exploding for the mask to come off. And here I am now, on the other side, walking through this season of redemption yet again. No mask though. Nice. They're starting to love me again by how I first loved Christ. Mm. This is where I'm at. How have you dealt with the PTSD? Oh man, I, I've seen therapists at the therapist. Well, when I first started seeing therapists, I was cussing them out. I remember the first, second therapist I had the first therapist I had was like a lieutenant colonel, something like that. Great guy. I only saw him once and they moved him out of Fort Riley. Mm. So I was stuck. Well, they moved him out of, was I in Fort Riley? No, I was in Schofield Barracks. Then the second therapist was some chick from, who had just graduated from Boise State. This is when I learned to eat therapists alive. She had no life experience. First question, I, she started to try to analyze me, ask me questions, so I fired back with questions. So you ever been in the military? No. You ever been in combat? No. You ever lost friends in combat? No. What the hell can you tell me? Mm. And that, that's continued. I cussed out my own chaplain, cussed out pastors, cussed out therapists. There's a black pastor in Orange, in, uh, Orange County, California. I rearranged his desk, mad at the world. It's all before Christ. And it wasn't until I found Christ and started seeing a psychologist and she hit me with a word I never heard in the therapy world, holistic. Everybody else wanted to push medicine. She wanted a holistic approach. Mm -hmm. So I started some of her methods of taking a more well-rounded, no medication approach to healing. And I started using the tools she'd teach me. And I went to Virginia, and I had a black social worker who really just poured into me. And she was a Christian. And one day I asked, I said, are you a woman of faith? And she was like, yep, yeah, not you asked, I can say that, yes. She was like, but I can't push it on you unless you ask first. So then we, we revamped everything we were doing mm. and took a, a holistic, biblical approach to my healing. And I came out here and I had an older black woman 
from New York who started helping me. And then I had an older woman via when COVID started who started helping me. And so I've always took the initiative once the scales fell off my eyes to start getting therapy, start getting help. And just sit down with somebody I could be open and honest with and not feel like I was being judged. And then I started putting men around my life and they were my therapy. My Holy Smokes brothers was my therapy. And that's when it really got going. When I moved to Austin in 2019, and I started meeting, meeting Tim Phillips and Jeff Styles and Fennell and and Doug Giles, you know, who's not in, I don't know if he's, I don't know if Doug is in Holy Smokes or not, but yeah. cigar smoker. Yeah. They started pouring into me. And I started, you know, kicking it with Rob, and I started kicking it with uh, David Gonzalez, and and all these guys, and Ashton, and and they just, we all had stories to tell, mm -hmm. and truths to bear. Mm -hmm. But they weren't letting me bear my cross alone. They were helping me bear my cross. Mm -hmm. They were picking me up on my low days, and I was picking them up on their low days. And we're smoking cigars talking about struggles in marriage. And we're smoking cigars talking about finances. And we're smoking cigars talking about goals and aspirations. And smoking cigars talking about Christ. And the one place that became my church was Holy Smokes. It became my church. The mm -hmm. church was burning me. But Holy Smokes became my church away from the church. Mm -hmm. And I met Kay for the first time when I met Tim Phillips. And Kay just loved me. I felt like I knew Kay for years. And it just became a place where I got to meet more guys, right? And, and Yale and, and Sam and... Now all these guys out here, as we sit here in Colorado, you know, guys and women, Megan, right? Yep. Me and Megan have a, a photo contest on the Holy Smokes group, right? <laughs> trying to figure out who got the best <clears throat> photos that we're posting. I'm trying to keep up with her. She's trying to keep up with me. <laughs> but it's been a beautiful thing, right? And I'm grateful for Holy Smokes because it's been my church. Mm. It's been my therapy. So where are you right now in your journey? In my journey, I'm waiting to hear back from Baylor about my master's social work program. And I just started as a board member for Wings for Warriors. It's a nonprofit uh, foundation out of Phoenix, Arizona. And what else is going on in my life? My kids are going back to school on Wednesday, and I'm happy about that. I love my kids, but I needed a break. <laughs> so things are looking up, Steve. Things are looking up. And I'm learning to tighten the wheels, tighten the nuts on my wheels so I can continue down this path. And I'm learning to use new tools to heal me within. And I'm still helping everybody else. I'm still helping others, you know, get the therapy that they need, get the help that they need. I'm still helping friends work through that stigma of mental health while I'm likewise continuing to get my own therapeutic treatment. Mm. 
So that's where I'm at, Steve. What are you passionate about? What am I passionate about? I love counseling and mentoring men. I love, love my children and my family. And I love cigars. God has given me a gift to speak. Mm. And I've learned how to let my gifts collide with my passions. So I'm learning how to be a better family man. I want to learn how to be a better family man is my goals. And my other goals is being a better me. Because without a better me in my walk with Christ, I can never be a better anything else. I see you got a ring on. Yep. Married? Remarried my wife. My first wife. Wonderful. So we were married for six years, divorced for four, remarried in 2017. Congratulations. And so being a family man encompasses that. Learning how to better lead my wife to Christ than to myself. Mm. By first loving mm. Christ himself. Mm. Holy Smokes is a pretty white community. Uh-huh. What would you say to recommend to us to start to reach out more and become more diverse within our community? We're already doing it. You look at our Asian brothers that are here with us today. I look at Austin, where blacks make up only like 5% of Austin. We have a nice size amount of blacks in our Austin chapter, our Austin Holy Smokes group. Me, Fennell, Dietrich. Um, there's some other guys that come here and there. Some new guys that we invited to the group, some new brothers. We have some black cigar smoking sisters that go to Jeff Styles' shop. So it's happening. One thing I've lo loved about Jeff, he's been intentional about it. Mm -hmm. Jeff has been intentional about diversifying both when it comes to ethnicity and women, our Holy Smokes group. You know, we have our sister in Christ, Amanda, who comes. And we're tasking her to bring some other women. And I have, I have a, a sister in Christ, Scylla, uh, who I want to get her more plugged in. I know she's been busy and I've been busy. And there's two other sisters I know that smoke cigars and love Christ and going to get them plugged in here soon. So we're making it, we're making it happen. So we're making it happen. And one thing I've learned about the Holy Smokes group as a whole, it's organically moving that way because my white Holy Smokers want it. They want it to happen. So nobody's having to tell them to make it happen. They're just doing it. It's wonderful. And that's the beauty of Holy Smokes. I don't have to feel like I'm black with my Holy Smoke brothers and sisters. I'm just me. 
Just a brother of the leaf. Just a brother of the leaf. There's no microaggressions. There's no preconceived prejudices that I've had to experience, right? They ask questions. They ask. That's the biggest thing. Like what? When Jeff first started it a couple of years ago, he asked, how can I as a white Christian brother be a better ambassador for the black and brown community? Mm. And he asked questions about about race that he had and wanted honest feedback and we gave it to him. And he asked questions about how to organically build those brotherhoods and those sistershoods and we answered him. And he ran with it and did it. But Jeff has that heart. Mm. Tim Phillips has that heart. They get it, right? Tim comes from California where all he's known is everything but white. He was more surrounded by black and brown than he was white. You know, guys like Rob, they get it. Guys like David Gonzalez, they get it. And when you look at David and LaDietrich's relationship, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And so guys are being intentional. And they're having guys over their house and breaking bread and smoking cigars. And it's just being intentional. Buzz is at my house on my patio breaking bread. Smoking cigars, spiritually spanking me, but loving me. <laughs> and so I oftentimes feel like the Holy Smokes group is like being in the military. I get to be in it without having to think about my blackness. Mm-hmm. And that's something I can appreciate. Mm-hmm. You look at Kay, who's running it all. He ain't white. <laughs> Big Japanese. Big Japanese. And people are jumping on. They're seeing it for what it is. And yeah, do I have a heart to see more, you know, black Holy Smoke brothers and sisters and Hispanic? Yeah, definitely. It's happening. It's happening. Sometimes we just have to let the course run its race organically. Mm -hmm. I think that's what the country needs. They need to learn how to organically break bread with their brothers and sisters who don't look like them. And until we as a country figure that out, we'll stay divided. Marcellus Nelson, let's get to rapid fire questions. Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80 year old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years. So I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020. He also talked about how we wrestle with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in, but the podcast is changing that. When I showed this to Kay at his house recently, we both started tearing up. This is my why for doing this show. So if that moved you, would you consider partnering with us? Kay and I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. 
There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holysmokes. That's patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, ad-free versions of the podcast, free swag like a Holy Smokes t-shirt, and more. That's patreon.com slash Holy smokes. You can also make a one-time tax-deductible donation at paypal.me slash holy smokes club, and both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire. Here. How's that stick treating you? Oh, it's good. It's going. When did you first try a cigar or pipe? My first time having a cigar was in Iraq. 2010, you said, right? Yep. Talk my, about that. My first cigar was not right. Had no idea what I was doing. The guy told me to take a big puff and inhale. Yeah, learned that lesson <laughs> the hard way. A little, a little hazing goes a long way, right? <laughs> and then uh, when I came back to the states, I moved to Hawaii. I didn't know nothing about cigars, but I knew I had tried a Java. I was like, all right, cool. Let me just smoke this until I figure it all out. And then fast forward, I ended up in Anaheim, California. And I found this place called Old Town Havana. The owner there is Bud's. And Bud's just loved me. Mm. Taught me the game of cigars. Let me break the rules of talking about spirituality and my walk with Christ. Bud's had two rules, no politics, no religion. Well, he let me break the ladder. And Buzz, every time I walk in, he give me a new stick to try. He worked me up to Cubans. Even this last time I was at his shop last week, he gave me a Byron, a Byron Reserva, five annuals. It was delicious. And then he told me how much it cost. And I said, yeah, I ain't gonna buy no more. <laughs> I'll wait till you give me another one for free. <laughs> but uh, he taught me how to differentiate between Connecticut's Maduro's how to sort of kind of understand the, my palate to what I liked and he also he started with Tati Always. that's his name that's his stick One, it's Yale and Jung's favorite yep and that's how I started that's how I started the big boy leagues outside of the one I had in Iraq which I can't even remember what it was something a Cuban of some sort you ever try pipe? No. But they smell good and I want to try one. I'm going to get one. I'm going to get one before the winter hits. Yep. I look forward to those pictures in the group. I got you. Favorite cigar? Old man. All right, Drew Estates, if you're listening, I need a job. <laughs> you can pay me for posting. My favorite cigar right now is still the Feral Flying Pig. The Bull is number two. Number three would probably be actually that Byron that I had. It's delicious. Now, one that snuck up lately in my top ten and didn't see it coming was that uh, Carmelone Barrel Age. Mm. It's by uh, La Aurora. Mm -hmm. It's good. I'd be in trouble if I don't shout out Doug Giles, right? I do love my safaris. They're still in my top ten. Don't kill me. I um, love safaris. I love safaris. Safaris are good. <clears throat> and that's sort of kind of where I'm at. I also like warped. 
Warped is probably number four in my lineup. So Warped definitely hits the top five. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? Mm. Most expensive. Well, did I pay for it or I didn't pay for it? <laughs> Either one. Oh, man. The most expensive box that I ever had is the Bull. Mm. The first box I ever had was the Bull. The most expensive I ever smoked was that Byron. Best dollar for dollar cigar. Oh, best dollar for dollar cigar. Let me not mess this up. Hold on, give me two seconds. It's by Warped. And it's small. But it's a small, but does the job all the way down to the nub. It is the Maestro Del Tiempo. It's by Warped. And it is the 16-something-something-something series. 6,000 something series but it's delicious it's yeah. a red band it's a red and blue band red on top yeah blue on the bottom it is absolutely the best pound for pound champ where's your go-to place to get your smokes I got two so I'm pissed off either one <laughs> uh, I always go to Casa de Monte Cristo where Jeff is the GM at and the other place I go to is Old Town Havana at the Orange Circle in Orange, California. Those are my two go-to places. What's your splurge cigar? Treating yourself. Treating myself cigar. You know what? I got a new one. All right. My new Treat Myself cigar is by LFD. It's the number two. That is my new boo. Mm. Uh-huh. It is the Capitulo number two. I know I'm saying that wrong. My wife would be ashamed of me. Because <laughs> she's Guatemalan and speaks Spanish first, English second. Yeah. And I still haven't figured it all out. <laughs> That's my splurge right now. It's about an $18 stick. I'll pay $18 all day for that. Yep. That's the one. Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Coffee or Dr. Pepper. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Most interesting person I ever met through cigars, Jeff Styles. Mm. Talk to me about Jeff. Jeff has a way of explaining what a cigar is supposed to do in your palate. And Jeff has this uncanny ability to ask you what two sticks you like the most and find a, mi a, a middle ground of a stick you never had that ends up tasting delicious. That's how I got on the warp. That's mm. why I've been on that warp train. Best place you've ever smoked? Best place I've ever smoked? On the beach, anywhere on the beach. Best conversation over a cigar? Sitting down with Jeff Styles. And just talking about life is always my best conversation mm. for a cigar. Marvel or DC? Oh, man. Or neither? Neither, really. But okay. I got friends on both sides of it. Like, how, how dare you? I'm, if I had to be anything, um, I'd be black Superman. So, but, you know, they haven't figured that out. So I guess, what well, the other one, Marvel. 
Marvel film. They're actually developing out. a black Superman. Yeah, that's my Michael, Michael B. Jordan is one of the, I think, the executive producer of that. And they need to cast me in there too, then. <laughs> Favorite food? Oh, that's easy. Um, my mother in law makes this thing called caldo. It's a form of soup. It's delicious. My second favorite food is tamales. My third is a steak medium rare. Boom. Dogs, cats, neither or both? Neither, because I don't want to take care of pooping scooping. Nickname growing up? Chewy. Chewy? Chewy? Ice Chewy, like Chewbacca. Yeah. I used to speak fast in high school. And my basketball team, they couldn't understand me, so they named me Chewy, short for Chewbacca. <laughs> and they used to make the noise. <laughs> What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? People always try to figure out who I am, and then they meet me, they realize they got a misconception one way or another. Mm. Some people think I'm preppy sometimes, and, and then they'll see me in cowboy boots the next time and be like, oh, okay. Or they think, you know, I'm a wannabe cowboy, and I don't want to be a cowboy, but... I like my boots, right? And then I'll be in some some socks, some slides, or some tennis shoes and a ball cap. Mm -hmm. But I love, love any excuse to get in the suit. Boom, there it is. I love any excuse to get in the suit. Favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible? Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willenick. Mm. John Maxwell's, with the 95 whatever power, and Anything that teaches me what schools never taught me. Mm. Yep. Do you have a life scripture? A life scripture. Yes, two. My favorite passage is Psalms 51 written by Dave, King David. Because I'm always reminded of my brokenness before Christ. And when I fall into sin... And then 2 Corinthians 12, that passage about Paul begging God to take his thorn from his side. And right after God says, no, because in your weakness, my power is being shown to be strong. I'm always reminded that God is using me, not in my strength, but in my weaknesses. Mm. If you could be any animal, what would you be? A tiger. Are you an early riser, night owl, or night normal? owl. I think deeper when I'm, when I'm up late. Mm. If you could live anywhere, where would you want to live? Oh, that's easy. The west side of Montana, up near Killispell area, where the backdrop is the mountains, and I could see somebody coming down my dirt road a mile away. Who's been the greatest influence in your life? Greatest influence in my life outside of Jesus, which is a cheesy answer. Um, Jeff Styles. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? Myself. Mm. I come from a long way by the grace of God. Mm. I'm always chasing a better me. That's wonderful. So when I hear success and a person that's successful, I ain't in competition with nobody but me. What do you do to rest, to recharge, for self-care? Smoke cigars. Be around people I trust because I'm an extreme extrovert. But if I really, really want to rest and recharge, and if I had any choice, I'd hike a mountain with a scar in my mouth. But I don't want to camp overnight. 
How long are you? How long are you here for? I leave in the morning. Well, I leave tomorrow afternoon, around noon. You got to come back here, dude. I will take you up on some good hikes. I'm down with it. I will take you up on some good hikes. On Wednesday, I'm doing. It's Mount Democrat, Mount Cameron, and Mount Lincoln. Okay, nice. Three fourteeners in Colorado. We have fifty plus fourteeners, mountains above fourteen thousand feet, mm-hmm. and it's about a seven mile round trip hike, and uh, about a thirty three hundred foot elevation gain. So it's a pretty steep hike up there. I did Democrat a few years ago, but this time I'm going to do the three, the loop of the three. I guess I got to get my fat boy on a treadmill and get to running before I come back, huh? <laughs> All right, last three. What does Holy Smokes mean to you, and what has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Holy Smokes has been church. On my journey, has been growth. If you could have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, the last one is a toss-up. Between? St. Augustine of Hippo. Boom. One, two, three. Why? I enjoy Augustine's past and his redemption in Christ to where he's at. People love the whitewash, somebody that wasn't white. And I just got a lot of questions. His faith is deep. Mm. And I want to ask questions about it. Martin Luther King, it's easy. That's the king. I want to learn how to be humble. Mm. And though people like to try to trash his image because he struggled with women, I'd like to know how did he walk through those seasons. Mm. I struggle with women. Mm. It doesn't make him less of a man. And the same people that love to trash King they got a lumber yard in their own eye trying to trash a man that they could never live up to if they had 10 lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And Nelson Mandela, how do you stand in the face of that kind of adversity, be thrown in prison, and still be humble? And have that kind of forgiveness. And that kind of forgiveness. It was unbelievable to watch. It was unbelievable to watch. It was so... Yeah, he, in my opinion, was truly one of the great human beings of the latter part of the 20th century. It was just, he was so admirable to watch. Forgiveness is an everyday journey for me, for some people in my life, who's caused great pain. And I just want to ask Nelson Mandela, how'd you do it? Final question. If we were to meet one year from today, and I got Dr. Pepper, we're sitting on your back porch, what are we celebrating? growth, being a better man, husband, father, but more importantly, being a better Christian. Marcellus Nelson, thank you for being on the Holy Smokes Podcast. Thank you, my brother. Mm -hmm.